Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I'm your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. Like Napoleon, I'm the first to admit when I make a mistake. I simply never do. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? Uh, not as confident in myself as you are, Sonny. I'm happy to be talking about movies with friends, even friends who are frequently wrong. Uh, Peter, I just want to thank you for passing along the trailer for uh, Napoleon, Ridley Scott's new epic, which is, of course, where uh, I stole that line from. I, I assume maybe he said it. Or, I don't know. I, I don't know history. History Movies, I know. History, I don't know. All right. First up in controversies and non-troversies, they say you should never pick a fight with uh, folks who buy ink by the barrel. But the folks at Warner Brothers have decided to pick a few fights over the last week or two that were eminently avoidable with such barrel of ink having people like ourselves. Uh, the first and dumbest of these altercations involved the effort by the studio to squelch a piece in GQ magazine by freelance critic Jason Bailey about the dreadfulness of W.B. Honcho, David Zaslav's tenure. Bad tenure so far. Uh, everyone's writing about it. Uh, after the essay went live, GQ, at the behest of someone at Warner Brothers, pulled it, rewrote it, and cut a bunch of paragraphs. Bailey, aghast, asked the magazine to take his byline off the piece. GQ said instead that they'd have to pull the piece altogether, which Bailey agreed to. The, the most foolish part of all this was that there was nothing particularly new or damning in Bailey's essay. It was a pretty straightforward rehash of the beefs folks have with Zaslav, from his gutting of Turner Classic Movies to the bastardization of HBO Max via the merger with Discovery+. Plus. There's certainly nothing worth getting in a tizzy over. If you're going to be a mogul, you got to have tough skin. But in a classic case of the Streisand effect, more people than ever saw the piece because it wound up on the Internet Archive, handing WB another self-inflicted injury. GQ, of course, actually probably looks worse here in this whole mess because, oops, turns out the editor of the magazine, uh, who was consulted on what to do with the story, is a producer on a WB movie. Holy conflict of interest, Batman. Elsewhere, the folks in the PR department decided to schedule Barbie press screenings in many cities, including D.C., Dallas, and Boston, uh, probably more also elsewhere that I'm unaware of, on the same day as the press screenings of Oppenheimer. This despite the fact that Universal announced weeks beforehand the day they were screening Oppenheimer, suggesting that this was perhaps intentional. This is a small thing, and it's really tiniest violin in the world stuff, I know. Like, oh no, we don't get to see all the free movies that we want to see, right? But it's still kind of a dick move, and it's one that hurts freelancers in particular because they rely on seeing these movies ahead of time so they can write about them for pay to pay their rent, whatever. Um, it's a needless provocation from a studio that could desperately use the smallest of PR wins. Peter, let's tackle the first item first here. Uh, who looks dumber in this whole mess, GQ or Warner Brothers? Oh, man, this is this is a dumb and dumber scenario. And I don't actually know whether Jeff Daniels or Jim Carrey is the is the dumb one or the dumber one. They're both dumb and they're both dumber here. Look, I never understand the big corporation press person impulse to try to get a publication to pull an article or heavily rewrite an article that has already been posted. It makes a lot of sense to me, frankly, for a, 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 a flack to be pushing hard for an article to be different or not run at all before that article is published. Like that's the job in a lot of ways is to make sure that the stuff that you don't want getting out there doesn't get out there. But I guess like have people who work for the comms department at Warner Brothers heard of the Internet? Because the way it works is that once things are online, they exist and they're and they're not going to unexist. There's no such thing as unexisting. 
And so once stuff is out there, like the the best thing you can do if you don't want people to pay attention to it is just ignore it. It's just ignore it. And that's not satisfying. It's not what your boss who hates that article wants because your boss is obsessed with that article because it's about your boss and about the bad job that your boss is doing. But you got to just tell your boss that no one else is thinking about this in the same way you are because the article isn't about them. And the best thing to do is just do your job and don't worry about this because no one's going to pay attention to this article anyway, unless you give them a good reason to. And one good reason to pay attention to an article is, oh my goodness, the article got pulled. The article got totally rewritten. And here's the original version. Here's the thing they didn't want you to see. When you make it something that pe- that they don't want you to see, the they being the big, powerful people who, you know, run magazines or movie studios, then people become interested in something. When you just sort of shrug it off and say, this is not a big deal, we're going to continue to do our work, then nobody pays that much attention. And flax need to learn that. And the fact that in 2023, decades into, you know, an internet that saves absolutely every single word that has ever been published or very close in which, you know, it's just about impossible to fully eliminate anything that has been posted online from, you know, the digital world. The fact that they still don't understand that and are still like trying to exist in a world where, oh, you know, if you just if you just pulp the magazines before they go out to subscribers, no one will ever know. It's, it's just not the world we live in. And they do, in these cases, just end up drawing more attention to the thing that they were trying to bury. Yeah, Alyssa, I mean, I, I was talking to uh, our mutual friend, Richard Rushfield of The Ankler, about this whole situation. And he said, look, you know, what Studio Flax do is they they yell and scream and they they tell you that the piece was unfair and they, they demand you pull it down and you, you, you listen and then you politely say, no, go away. And they go away and then you do the whole dance again a week later. I mean, what what on earth is the person at GQ who actually pulled this thinking? I, I just like, as an editor... There are pieces, you know, that I have worked on that I haven't loved how they turned out. But I would rather burn the whole website down than have some flack get rewrite something that ran on my website for me. Yeah. And I would also say that I think good press people know how to mediate between their bosses and journalists in these kinds of situations because they're playing for a long game. Like I hear all the time from flax who and it's often something really little, right? Like I mentioned an event that sort of has its own branding in a column, but not the sponsoring organization. And the sponsoring organization is like, can you go and add it back in? And what you say to them under those circumstances, like, it's up. I'm sorry. We don't make changes once something's in print. I'll keep that in mind for the future. And then the flack says, like, can go back to their boss and say, like, I extracted a small concession, et cetera. And Full disclosure, I'm friendly with Joanna Fuentes, who used to run Warner Brothers Communications. I know her back from when she was running communications for Showtime. And she was very good at sort of play, like playing the long game and not being defensive and sort of, you know, and was confident when you didn't like something. There was a, always a sense with her that you were like building a relationship. And so, you know, you could pan something that she worked on or, you know, disagree with some aspect of corporate strategy And, you know, she is a professional. And if I was working in communications at WB Discovery, like, I would be counseling Zaslav to lean into his supervillain summer, right? Like, the absolute best case scenario for him in this scenario is to be completely unbothered when people are mad at him 
and then turn the place around, have it be a huge success, and have everyone talking in three years about like how smart he was to, you know, trim a bunch of unprofitable content and take, you know, like the write down at Batgirl and everything else. Like, I mean, for all that Zaslav is very unpopular right now, he again, and I'm not a professional business analyst here, although I think my common sense has taken me pretty far in this arena. Everything he's doing seems fairly sensible to me, right? I mean, the content and streaming boom were the product of cheap money, as we've talked about on this podcast a lot of times before. The, you know, there's going to have to be a lot of belt tightening and consolidation. And the stuff he's doing is not popular, but it is definitely aimed at trimming things where, frankly, they probably hurt the least to the max user base and everything else. And so the absolute best move for him would be to just play all of this stuff incredibly cool, be totally unbothered, and then enjoy it when everyone says he's right in three years. I guess this is what I, I as somebody as somebody who spends a fair amount of time getting yelled at on the internet and, you know, some pe- who some people don't like, I have long ago figured out that the best thing you can do is just either ignore or lean into what people are saying. And I, it, it really Wait, strikes Sonny, me as... Sonny, are you saying that your whole shtick is an act? No, I would never. I would never say something like that because that's not true. It's just who I am. Like again, like Napoleon, never been wrong. The issue here again is like picking dumb, unnecessary fights. I mean, like again, let's look at this Barbie Oppenheimer situation. Right? It was very clear from the get go that this was set up to be a big conflict between Universal, uh, which you know stole away Christopher Nolan, Warner Brothers, you know House Genius after the Warner you know moved to, to streaming during the pandemic. And that's why we have Barbie and Oppenheimer coming out on the same day. You know, it's a, it's a big head-to-head fight. But right now, the mood in Hollywood is like one of kind of comedy, right? It's, it is, you got Tom Cruise out there with like, I'm here with Christopher McQuarrie and we got tickets to Barbie and Oppenheimer. It's going to be great. Going to do a double feature. And like, that's kind of the, the mood of the moment right now. So when you, when you do these dumb little petty things like schedule the press screenings on the same day in every market except for New York City and Los Angeles... You antagonize people unnecessarily, right? Like, it's just it's just dumb. I don't get it. Yeah. And to be clear, I mean, I think those of us in D.C. are not going to be able to see Barbie early, not merely because of the conflict, but because they're limiting, you know, press access pretty rigorously to the Barbie screening, which is weird to me. But, you know, hey, if they've got a lot of demand for Greta Gerwig's take on Barbie, I, I am all for that. I will say, in, in defense of the folks who schedule screenings here in D.C., my understanding, uh, from I mean, which I mean, we both heard, is that the demand was so high that that's why they've limited it. So it's not necessarily that they that they're not letting people see it. It's it's that there's very high demand, and so they've tried to sort of uh, manage the the very high demand by by putting some limitations. Which is to say, there will be a lot of people who get to see Barbie in advance here in DC. Yeah. At the same time, if they if Warner Brothers had not done this sort of larger petty thing where they were trying to make critics choose between. Oppenheimer and Barbie, they could have done, you know, flooded the zone with half a dozen Barbie screenings, let everybody who wanted to see it see it, and then sort of win the press cycle um, with Oppenheimer, which might have been sensible as well. And then it would be much easier for the local press reps, like our folks at Allied, who have been very good to everyone on this podcast over the years, to, you know, to do their jobs as well. So it's, it's kind of unfair to everybody, except... Actually, not even except, including the folks at who made this movie for Warner Brothers and are try- very gamely getting out there to promote it. So I will say, 
like maybe a month or two ago, I tweeted that the funniest possible thing that could be done about the Barbie Oppenheimer release date would be to schedule the advanced critic screenings on the exact same day at the same time, forcing critics to choose. I meant that as a joke, but I do think it's a little bit funny, right? If we're going to think of this as like as a kind of a rivalry between like two schools of, you know, uh, movie fandom, then forcing critics, critics to pick one or the other is at least a little bit amusing. It's not ideal, actually, from a practical and, you know, perspective for people trying to do their jobs and write about this stuff. But but it is as a as a sort of a cultural artifact and gimmick. I don't know. I find it a little bit amusing. I will say the fun, the actual funniest thing of all time, and I'm stealing this joke shamelessly from Twitter, is someone actually outfitted like a Malibu Barbie, like dream house Airbnb in Malibu. And the actual funniest thing of all time would be for the Oppenheimer people to nuke it. Okay. Uh, all right. This wait, is getting wait, wait. out of hand. This is getting <laughs> that, out of hand. We don't support the use of nuclear weapons on this podcast. Just no. It's bad. Well, we want no, no nukes. Uh, for the no record, nukes, guys. Uh, we are not going to stake out that position. Uh, you can you can argue whatever you want, but when no we get to Oppenheimer, I'm sure we'll have a, ambiguity from me. I'm sure we'll have. I'm sure we'll are have. Are we a, anti? A very, are we anti first strike? Well, I mean, look again. I think we should save all of this discussion for the Oppenheimer episode in two weeks uh, because we're going to do Oppenheimer first because we're going to go to the Oppenheimer press screening and then we're going to do Barbie the week after that. It's really backfiring on Warner Brothers. All right, uh, all right. Where this is getting out of hand, we're getting we're involving <laughs> nuclear weapons and everything. Uh, all all right, so what do we think? Is it uh, a controversy or an controversy that uh, Warner Brothers seems to be going out of its way to annoy the working press? Alyssa? Uh, controversy, and also we didn't discuss this at all, but GQ is dumb as hell for having given in on this. Yeah. It's just incredibly embarrassing. So stupid. Uh, Peter? It's a controversy that GQ pulled the article that the that Warner Brothers thought that they could get away, not that they could get away with this, but that they thought they could get the article pulled and no one would notice and that GQ complied. Definitely a controversy. It's a controversy. Dumb, dumb things all around. Everybody's being dumb. Stop being dumb, everyone. Be smart like me. Uh, all right, make sure to swing by Bulwark Plus this Friday for our bonus episode. We're going to look at the first half of the year, best movies, favorite, favorite stuff. What did we love from the first half of the year? Six months down, six months to go. It's going to be going to be a great show. All right, now on to the main event. Past Lives. The feature debut from writer-director Celine Song uh, opens with this really wonderful shot. Uh, it's almost a, a De Palma-esque aside about the voyeurism of the cinema. The camera is focused on three individuals. There's an Asian man, an Asian woman in the middle, and then a white guy on the right-hand side of the screen. And they are on the other side of the bar from where the camera is. And as the voiceover kicks in, we realize this is actually a POV shot. The, there are two people who are trying to figure out what their story is. Are these three people co-workers? Is the guy at the end, the white guy, the translator for the first two? Uh, there's something inherently exotic about the trio, particularly given that they're out in four in the morning uh, in New York City. What's what's their story? And as we push in, the woman looks at the camera and we cut to 24 years in the past. The woman is a girl uh, whose family is about to immigrate from South Korea to Canada. Her anglicized name will be Nora. She is friends with Hae Sung, uh, who is a, a little boy in her class. Nora's mother wants the two children to go on a date before she leaves for the West. They have a nice little moment. And then we flash forward 12 years later when Hae Sung and Nora reconnect via social media, the wonders of Facebook. An old friendship rekindled turns into something like a romance. Uh, the two speaking via Skype as they begin to find their footing in the post-collegiate world. Uh, while the emotional distance between them shortens, the physical distance remains, and eventually Nora needs a break. Shortly thereafter, she meets 
the other man we see at the bar, Arthur, at an artist retreat, and we uh, take Hei Sung to be dating somebody else he meets when he is uh, working in China. Twelve years later again, we skip ahead twelve years later, Arthur and Nora are married. Uh, Hei Sung is coming to New York City where Arthur and Nora live for a vacation. He is newly single. Will he try to rekindle the brief love that they uh, shared? Or has that time passed? Past Lives is, it's a very nice little movie. It's a nice kind of slight movie. Some wonderful performances here. Greta Lee as Nora, uh, Tio Yo as Hei Sung. Uh, but I really love John. I can never pronounce his I don't know if it's Magaro or Magaro, whatever. Either way, John, John Magaro, that's what I'm going to go with, as Arthur. Uh, he, in particular, is just very, very good in this movie as the third wheel in the whole relationship. Um, like, he, he has this kind of pained look on his face all the time. He's very obviously threatened by the connection between Nora and Sung, but is equally obviously constrained by his own kind of progressive worldview and sensibilities, right? He feels uncomfortable fighting for his woman. He even vocalizes at one point that he feels like the villain in the story, the, the dumb white boyfriend who's getting in the way of the childhood sweethearts falling in love all over again. But honestly, that that little bit there is my, my problem with the story. I simply never really bought Hey Sung and Nora is this great lost love reuniting years later. I just, it, it didn't do anything for me. As somebody who has spent a fair portion of his childhood kind of hopping from city to city, uh, my, my folks, my dad was in the military. We moved around a lot. It was a, a kind of constant, you know, making friends, leaving them, whatever. It's the sort of thing that feels like, I felt like I should have had a greater connection to this than I did. And it just feels falsely convenient for plotting purposes, nothing nothing else. Again, Past Lives, it's a nice movie with very, very fine performances. It's a nice breath of fresh air in the CGI wasteland of summer. But I would argue that it's not even the best movie released this year by A24 about a female writer living in New York City and dealing with marital strain. Uh, for the record, that's You Hurt My Feelings, which came out a couple <laughs> months ago. is really, really good. Um, Alyssa, everyone else seems really blown away by Past Lives. I, like, I, numerous people... You know, saying that is that if they see a better movie this year, they'll be surprised. And that strikes me as kind of nuts, frankly, even though, again, I liked it fine. It's fine. But I did not. I was not blown away about it. What have I what have I missed here? I don't know that you've missed something. I mean, it's it's basically like naked longing the movie. And um, I think to a certain extent how much that affects you. I mean, it just, I think whether it gets you in the feels kind of depends on where you are in the moment. I, you know, I'm in a place in my life where I've been thinking a lot about friendship and maintaining friendships and, you know, sort of what goes into that, what's possible. And so I think I was particularly primed to be affected by this. But I mean, I also, I think I also found just the sort of, I found the acting and the shot selection, very, very affecting here. I don't know if you guys noticed this as well, but Song does something repeatedly in the movie where she'll start a shot with one character or sort of a pair of characters more in the center of the screen and then like very, very, very gradually shift it. So the perspective and sort of who's at the center or whether anyone is at the center changes over the course of the shot. Um, and she does this sort of three or four times over scenes that last a couple of minutes. And I love that as a way of 
very slowly shifting the emotional energy in a shot along with the dialogue and the characters. And, you know, it's it's something that I think a lot of other de- directors might have done. You know, you do it with the two shot, you switch perspectives. And she's using sort of the same camera the whole time, but just gradually shifting the weight and the emotional balance of the scene. And it's not just that the movie is a refuge from the CGI wasteland, but that, you know, there are a bunch of thoughtful things happening with shot framing and camera work, right? I mean, the scene, for example, where Nora and Haesung say goodbye as children in Seoul, and their paths literally divert at a corner, and both paths are angled upwards, but hers more dramatically than his, right? I mean, there's this sense contained in the shot that her life is going to change more radically and sort of at a sharper pace than his is. And the movie doesn't necessarily return to that particular kind of shot or that idea, but it's sort of the whole trajectory of the film, you know, in one image. And I found it so thoughtful and yearning that I was very affected by it. Again, I don't think it's a major movie. I think it's small, but very, very, very well done. And sometimes just sort of taste and care are, will take you very, very far, I think, in a way that sloppy or tasteless special effects and spectacle will not. And this movie, this movie is just a very good sort of expression of film grammar. It's clean, it's clear, and it's just about fundamentals performed really, really well. Peter, what did you make of Past Lives? I loved this movie, and I think Alyssa is exactly right. This movie is not just a great little kind of quasi-love story. It is a movie of incredible visual sophistication, simple visual sophistication, you know, but but just incredible uh, shot design and uh, camera movement and color and just a couple of shots that's, that stood out. Since I know Alyssa has already listed a couple, but there's this great bit where Nora and Haesung have met up in New York finally after all of these years, and they're just walking along the water with the giant New York bridges in the background. Uh, is it the Brooklyn Bridge or the Williamsburg Bridge? or But anyway, one of those. And they're just sort of framed against the grandeur and the vastness of New York as they discuss their lives, you know, and sort of go over what they've been up to and what they've done. And it is, it's a perfect encapsulation of this idea that then later comes up in, uh, in conversation between them, where he tells her, you know, that, um, that Korea was too small a place for her ambitions, right? She has, cu- she has immigrated to New York and to America because only America is big enough for who she wants to be and for her, the ambitions for her life. It's also just beautiful in the way that it just kind of rests moves very slowly and slightly you know but lets you just sort of linger in in the grandness of this little moment um you know and then there's like there's there's connecting stuff that comes out of just out of that sequence in that shot where they end up you know near a carousel and uh, and there's this great bit that I just loved, right? So, okay, so they're, they've got their, their their first time they meet up together after all these decades in New York. And she goes home and, of course, talks to her husband about this. And we find out that he's obviously awkward and uncomfortable about the whole thing. And they have this conversation in bed. And then as that conversation is ending, and it's sort of the closer to the second act is, right, oh, man, we've really kind of come, this has all come to a head. The movie cuts back 
to now a nighttime shot of that carousel. And the lights just go off. And it's, again, it's this incredibly simple shot. It's not like, wow, this is just so technically complicated. Man, how did Martin Scorsese spend six weeks designing this thing? No, it's not like that. It's that every shot has a a great underlying idea. And they're also like, they're, they're beautiful. They're just really pretty. And so I, there's just so much of that in this movie. There's a, there's a little shot at the very end that it broke me is, is too much, but that I just sort of like, I was so entranced by the movie at this point, but we're, I don't know, almost 90 minutes into the film. It's like the next to the last scene there in the bar. And there's this shot of a pen on a receipt, you know, like after you sign your receipt with the tip at a bar, right? And it's just this still little shot that captures something specific and physical about the moment in a way that you almost never see on film. But that when I, when I come across these, these like, oh, this is just a beautifully and subtly captured moment of something like real life that you have forced me to focus on and you've heightened. And the movie's just, it's like, I just, it really kind of hit me weirdly hard. I was like, holy crap, how did how does that even work? How does a pen on a piece of on a receipt on a bar top like how does that? Oh, it's closure. It's this idea of, you know, this is where the night came to. Right. It's all of these things, but it's also just moody and evocative. And the whole movie has stuff like that. That final shot of the two of them walking down the street in the, uh, the East Village uh, so that he can get his Uber. If you notice, as they walk along the street at first, you've got all of these red doors and this red light that is sort of flashing between them, right? And it's this heat that's sort of, that's just building tension. And they finally get to where he's going to get his Uber. And maybe like you just, like the movie is sort of teasing, are they going to kiss? Is this going to be the thing? And, you know, I, I won't tell you what happens, but... The door that they're standing in front of is blue. Suddenly it has cooled. The moment has changed. Like I could just go through and do this with every shot in the movie and I've only seen it once. The visual sophistication I will like is just is just the kind of thing that I I I live for as somebody who loves movies is like that's that's what I what I want to see is our our shots that have incredibly clear ideas that are sort of mystifyingly beautiful, even if they're not technically complex in the way of like, oh, these are like cinema bros, like love these, you know, the Copacabana scene. Like, I love that stuff too. But this movie has something different, which is just a visual intelligence that you almost never see. It's also, the other thing that I would just, that I want to point out here is, I loved this movie because it is the exact opposite of almost everything, not almost, but of so much of what we've been watching over the past year or two, which is multiverse movies. This is an anti-multiverse movie. And if you've been watching all these multiverse movies, even the good ones, Everything Everywhere All at Once, the Spider-Verse films, even the good ones, they do have a little bit of a problem or like a, a the, the, like at the the base of the multiverse concept, which is well, you know, if you've if you've got the multiverse, if every choice is possible, then no choice matters. And what this movie is about is there maybe uh, were other choices possible, but you made one specific choice in your life, and that was the choice that mattered, and that's why it mattered is because ultimately you can't go back and do it again. You can't live two lives. You can't date two guys and get married to two different people and have two totally different. Nope, that's it. You made one choice. And that's the hard thing about life. And it's also the beautiful thing about life. And this movie captures that linear choice-driven sensibility, like that that idea that that life is choices that you have to commit to, that you can't undo, that there's no way to go back on. 
This movie captures that in a really nice and powerful way that is just works very well on its own, but is also a great antithesis to all of the 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 multiverse choice kind of doesn't matter because we can just go back and redo them stuff that we have seen over the past couple of years. Well, and I would also note that part of what makes this movie appealing is that it's about people who are fundamentally decent and honorable and make the right choices, right? And it argues to a certain extent for the value of restraint and decency for Arthur John McGarrow's character not being the sort of controlling weird guy who's like, you know, no, you can't see this, you know, this friend who you've had this sort of longstanding relationship with. And, you know, but also for, you know, Sung to say sort of very explicitly to Arthur, it's like, it's a good thing that, you know, she married you and I, you know, I see why you two are together. And, the decency of these characters is not without cost to them personally, but the movie really is rooted in a sort of respect for them and their goodness. It's, I mean, on a, on a small level, it's a movie about temptation, right? And temptation successfully resisted. And it is a rejection of the idea that you can sort of have a multiverse within your own life, that you can sort of blow up everything without consequence and make a different set of choices without that detonation, that defenestration sort of seeping into everything. Have either of you read Kazuo Ishiguro's Remains of the Day? Yeah. Yes, though not for a while. Yeah. I mean, this is a very sort of Ishiguro yes. movie um, in terms of restraint and longing and, you know, very much in terms of the ending too, which I will not discuss in great detail. Um, but it's if you if you enjoyed that vibe, highly recommend Ruins of the Day as um, as some summer reading. It strikes me talking to you guys. One one thing I might have like just a little more to to delve just a little into is the way Nora feels about being a child of two distinct cultures and being pulled in two separate ways, which we don't really get a lot of except for in her conversations with Hei Sung, where it's it seems obvious that she feels like she's missing something, but what that is exactly isn't entirely clear. Again, maybe it's better left unsaid, maybe it's better left subtly kind of hinted at, but it, I get this distinct feeling we are supposed to feel that she is torn between two places, and it does not feel that way from her life or her actions at all. I didn't get that she was supposed to feel torn. I got that she was supposed to feel as if there was another path she could have taken. And I think that's true, at least for a lot of people. I certainly can imagine different versions of myself, even radically different versions of myself, um, including versions that didn't leave, you know, my where I, where I grew up and how that would have changed me. And being confronted with somebody from her childhood who then she had, a, for a period of time, an intimate though distant relationship with, it forces her to think about the alternate path she could have taken. And that's different than feeling conflicted about it. I'm not particularly conflicted about the alternate paths I could have taken, but I do sometimes think about them and think about the ways that my life could be very different and in the ways in which my specific life is contingent on a bunch of things that, about me and on a bunch of choices that, that I have made and on a bunch of things, a bunch of choices that were made for me that I didn't, that I had no choice in, right? And this is, the the, the movie gets at a lot of that very well. And, and I would just also note that there's that section 
the second quarter of the movie in which Haesung and uh, Nora are having the long distance relationship. And while it's not super, super, super detailed, it's not as children that they fall in love. It's as young adults having a very intense early online uh, long distance relationship. And that's when they got actually very, very close to each other was at that period, which was you can kind of think of as as a a moment where they could have come together or ultimately could have been apart and they ended up apart. I don't think that's precisely right. I mean, I think that the the way the the opening sequence with them as children works with him, uh, you see the shot of them in the back of the car driving, you know, away from their date and she is holding his hand and he looks very happy. And then you see you see him uh, basically heartbroken when she sang in the classroom, you know, oh, it's my choice to leave. I'm getting out of here. I, I don't want to be here anymore. And again, at that that moment that Alyssa mentions where they they split paths, he's clearly very distraught, yeah. I think. He, I mean, he I, misses I, her, but it's not they my he's the one who seeks her out. On Facebook, they had an adult closeness that was reinforced by that, uh, that was built on that long distance relationship. But it's, I mean, this is an interesting movie with the way it treats gender in the sense that Nora is, has like a kind of coolly masculine energy that is reflected both sort of in her ambition, but also in the way that they dress her for the film, right? I mean, she, you know, she doesn't wear a lot of makeup. You know, they often dress her in sort of like loose clothes. Um, you know, this, she's wearing this sort of loose pants and collared shirt for her day around the city with Hey Sung. And the one point at which she sort of dresses up in a way that is kind of sexy and feminine is when they go to the bar and she's wearing the dress with like long slits off the side, but she's still wearing like sort of combat boots with it. And there's this scene with Arthur when he tells her. You know, he confesses some anxiety about her friendship with Aesung and also explains that he's learning Korean to understand what she's saying in her sleep, right? Where he is the more sort of vulnerable and open and kind of head over heels person in that partnership, where she's the person who, you know, sees the relationship as like a little bit contingent, like it's good for her to have the green card, but that's not sort of emotionally inauthentic to her, right? And so this is a movie where both of the men are experiencing a lot of yearning and longing and sort of like conventionally feminine, you know, anxieties and attachments. And the woman is the sort of cooler, more pragmatic, more in some ways ruthless character. And none of it, again, none of it's harsh. None of it is done as sort of like an explicitly gender swapped thing. But it definitely lends the movie an interesting vibe. Bro's got feelings too. So I've heard. He also feels trapped in his uh, kind of the standard patriarchal norms of Korean society, right? He yeah. he has to he feels pressured to abandon a relationship because he has not made enough money, he has not, you know, made enough name for himself. He's the only child. He is supposed to be doing greater things before he gets married, which is again, it's an interesting there's like an interesting way in which both uh, both Haesung and Arthur feel trapped and forced into various positions. It is hilarious that Arthur's book, which we see at the signing, is called Boner. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, I, I laughed at that like detail. It's, it's the one little sort of mean-spirited, like, jab at, you know, sort of New York literary stuff. Um, but it's very funny. Yes. Um, yeah, and there is a very different way this all could have gone, this whole movie. I mean, there there are shades of kind of Jules A. Jim here and, and other stuff, but 
Anyway, all right. Uh, so uh, what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on past lives? Alyssa. Thumbs up. Peter. Thumbs up in a preview of the bonus episode. It is my favorite movie of the year so far. Yeah, thumbs up. It's fine. It's fine. All right, that is it for this week's show. Make sure to head over to Bulwark Plus for our bonus episode on Friday. Make sure to tell your friends. Strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If you don't grow, we'll die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. Bye.